one common teaching tool that the Buddha and many other spiritual teachers use is to tell a story and to um, let the listener listen to the story and ask the listener to notice what part of the story most catches their attention. Whether it's an image or an action or a being or some element of the story that most draws them in to the story. And then to take a lesson from that piece of the story and to understand that that story and that piece of that story has some particular significance or meaning to you at that time or at this time. So tonight I want to also tell a story and comment on it a little bit and encourage you to listen to hear just which part of the story most speaks to you and where you are in your life or in this practice or in this retreat right now. A different part of the story might speak to you at a different time, but right now, one part will call your attention. So, once there was a mouse. He was a busy mouse, searching everywhere, touching his whiskers to the grass, and looking. He was busy as all mice are, busy with mice things. But once in a while he would hear an odd sound. He would lift his head, squinting hard to see his whiskers wiggling in the air, and he would wonder. One day, he scurried up to a fellow mouse and asked him, Do you hear a roaring in your ears, my brother? No, no, answered the other mouse, not lifting his busy nose from the ground. I hear nothing. I am busy. Talk to me later. He asked another mouse the same question, and the mouse looked at him strangely. Are you foolish in your head? What sound? He asked and slipped into a hole in a fallen cottonwood tree. The little mouse shrugged his whiskers and busied himself again, determined to forget the whole matter. But there was that roaring again. It was faint, very faint, but it was there. One day, he decided to investigate the sound just a little. Leaving the other busy mice, he scurried a little ways away and listened again. There it was. He was listening hard when suddenly someone said, Hello. Hello, little brother, the voice said, and Mouse almost jumped right out of his skin. He arched his back and tail and was about to run. Hello, again, said the voice. It is I, Brother Raccoon. And sure enough, it was. What are you doing here all by yourself, little brother? asked the raccoon. The mouse blushed, put his nose almost to the ground, and said, I hear a roaring in my ear, and I am investigating it. He he answered timidly. A roaring in your ears, replied the raccoon, as he sat down with him. What you hear, little brother, is the river. The river? Mouse asked curiously. What is a river? Walk with me and I will show you the river, raccoon said. Little Mouse was terribly afraid, but he was determined to find out once and for all about the roaring 
I can return to my work, he thought, after this thing is settled. And possibly, just possibly this thing may aid me in all of my busy examining and collecting. And my brothers all said it was nothing. I will show them. I will ask Raccoon to return with me and I will have proof. All right, Raccoon, my brother, said Mouse. Lead on to the river. I will walk with you. Little Mouse walked with Raccoon. His little heart was pounding in his breast. The raccoon was taking him upon strange paths, and little mouse smelled the scent of many things that had gone by that way. Many times, he became so frightened, he almost turned back. Finally, they came to the river. It was huge and breathtaking, deep and clear in places, and murky in others. Little mouse was unable to see across it, because it was so great. It roared, sang, cried, and thundered on its course. Little Mouse saw great and little pieces of the world carried along on its surface. It is powerful, Little Mouse said, fumbling for words. It is a great thing, answered the raccoon. But here, let me introduce you to a friend. In a smoother, shallower place, was a lily pad, bright and green. Sitting upon it was a frog, almost as green as the pad it sat on. The frog's white belly stood out clearly. Hello, little brother, said the frog. Welcome to the river. I must leave you now, cut in Raccoon, but do not fear, little brother, for a frog will care for you now. And Raccoon left, looking along the river bank for food that he might wash and eat. In this first part of the story, we can see ourselves quite clearly. I mean, at some point in our life, being quite busy with our little things, you know, busy collecting and getting and doing and keeping our nose to the ground and too busy to hear that subtle, faint sound off there in the distance. But someday we hear it. And we begin to wonder, what, what is it? What, what's that sound out there? What's this thing outside of my normal everyday life that I'm aware of, but not really knowing of? And with some initial flickering of curiosity, or maybe discontent, or some initial opening to uh, explore, we sense that there is something else going on in life than what we are currently experiencing. And when we ask others to confirm our sense of this vague, unknown thing, they're too busy. They don't know. And in fact, they may try to shame us with calling us foolish for having such thoughts or such interests or even hearing such a call to awaken. But even we, with that non-confirmation, cannot obscure the knowledge we have by being busy, by trying to deny what we know in busyness. It does not obscure what we have felt. And someday, or one day, 
the curiosity got the best of us, and we started on this journey. We began to look, just a little, just in case. And maybe we didn't get too far, but we found someone, some guide, some book, some person, some experience that began to uh, offer us a little pointing out or a little uh, advice. And of course, in our doubt and fear and questioning and self-consciousness, we would feel a lot of fear and timidity and um, confusion maybe when that first guide questioned us as to what was going on in our life and what were we looking for in particular. And when we express our initial knowledge of hearing some calling in our life, the guide may have a word for it. Oh, that's the river. And we may indeed be able to acknowledge, oh, that's the river. Oh, good. And yet we still know nothing about it. And yet when another has the word for our unknown, it sometimes feels knowable, even though we have not yet known it. And so, with some invitation to journey on the path, maybe we could arouse our determination like the mouse and overcome our fear and step in the direction of the unknown thinking, of course, that maybe, maybe it would be useful in our life. Maybe we could use it somehow to, to, to make our life better. Hoping for success or profit, believing that once we got something that our other busy mice friends didn't have, we'd show them. And in fact, we could ask the raccoon to come back as proof. You know, we could hold up our experience, our teacher, uh, the book we read and say, hey, this is proof. This is who I am. We could rely on the authority of that spiritual guide as a confirmation of who we were hoping to become. And as all journeys into the unknown proceed, we're taken upon strange and unfamiliar terrain. And it's not always uh, geographical. It's most often the terrain of the mind, of the heart. And it de is indeed sometimes strange and unknown, different and unfamiliar. No wonder we feel so much fear. But when we begin to look at the spiritual dimension of life, or when we begin to traverse the path to the unknown, then we come to and we find within ourselves the river of our life, that great, all-encompassing flow that carries everything through us when we begin to open to all the possibilities that exist 
in the world, in our life. We step outside of our immediate conditioning, our immediate uh, sense of who we are. And we see all that we might be or all that we might become. And the first guide that brought us to this place, that initially pointed us into ourselves, into our own river of life, may not be the guide that takes us any further, but may need to pass us on to or pass us over to another teacher or another guide, someone who is at ease with the river of life, someone who knows how to live in the flow. I remember when in my own life um, I, was, I had the first opportunity to step outside of this, um, my conditioning of growing up in this um, little uh, paper mill town in central Maine. And that is a pretty isolated and a pretty narrow uh, view of yourself that you get growing up in the 50s in central Maine. And in the early, or in the mid-60s, um, I started traveling to Boston just to uh, see what was going on. And of course, in the 67 and 68, Boston was just opening up with psychedelics and uh, the East was coming West and it was uh, terribly exciting and terribly frightening a time. And yet, I was drawn to hang out in Boston a lot and um, didn't know if I wanted to be there or participate in this new opening or this new possibility, but I didn't have much choice. I was there and drawn there and I can remember feeling how exciting and frightening it was at the same time. And I think sometimes when we first get a glimpse into our own mind, when we first see all of the stuff in there, it can be terribly exciting and terribly frightening at the same time. So the story goes on. Remember now the mouse has gotten to the bank of the river and met the frog. Little mouse approached the water and looked into it. He saw a frightened mouse reflected there. Who are you? Little mouse asked the reflection. Are you not afraid being that far out into the great river? No, answered the frog, I'm not afraid. I have been given the gift from birth to live both above and within the river. When winter man comes and freezes this medicine, I cannot be seen, but all the while Thunderbird flies, I am here. To visit me, one must come when the world is green. I, my brother, am the keeper of the water. Amazing, little mouse said at last, again fumbling for words. Would you like to have some medicine power? Frog asked. Medicine power? Me? Asked little mouse. Yes, yes, if it is possible. Then crouch as low as you can and then jump as high as you are able. You will have your medicine, Frog said. Little mouse did as he was instructed. He crouched as low as he could and jumped. And when he did, his eyes saw 
the sacred mountains. Little Mouse could hardly believe his eyes, but there they were. But then he fell back to earth and he landed in the river. Little Mouse became frightened and scrambled back to the bank. He was wet and frightened nearly to death. You have tricked me, Little Mouse screamed at the frog. Wait, 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 said the frog. You are not harmed. Do not let your fear and anger blind you. What did you see? I, 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 Mouse stammered, I, I saw the sacred mountain. And you have a new name, Frog said. It is Jumping Mouse. Oh, thank you, thank you, Jumping Mouse said, and thanked him again. I want to return to my people and tell them of this thing that has happened to me. Go, go then, Frog said. Return to your people. It is easy to find them. Keep the sound of the Medicine River to the back of your head. Go opposite to the sound, and you will find your brother mice. Jumping Mouse returned to the world of the mice, but he found disappointment. No one would listen to him. And because he was wet and had no way of explaining it because there had been no rain, many of the other mice were afraid of him. They believed he had been spat from the mouth of another animal that had tried to eat him. <laughs> and they all knew that if he had not been food for the one who wanted him, then he must also be poison for them. Jumping Mouse lived again among his people but he could not forget his vision of the sacred mountain. The second phase or second chapter or second element of the story is where we get a glimpse of the sacred. Where we get our first confrontation, our first look at our own personal reflection. And we also get a glimpse into the mystery of the river, the sacredness of the mountains. And when we get that first reflection of ourself, when we first look inside at our own shadow, at our own elements of our own personality that we don't want to see, but we get an accurate reflection, we often are afraid of what we see in ourselves: Our fears, our shame, our envies, our confusion, we see our limitations and our judgments and our ignorance and our insignificance. And often we don't recognize that these are indeed our own. But rather we try to project it out and think that it's someone else. Someone else's fears. Someone else's limitations. But the frog is knowledgeable of the flowing waters of life one who is able to live with what is conscious, unconscious, subconscious, all that flows through our minds, our hearts. Of course, like the frog, when the river is frozen, when our river of our life is frozen, whether in fear or habit or stuckness, the frog can't see, the frog can't be seen. But when we are flowing as the river flows. The world is green. The world is growing. We are alive, changing, moving. And the one who knows the contents or who is familiar with all that life offers holds the key 
to spiritual awakening can point the way to the sacred, to that knowledge, to that vision that leads to wisdom. But to receive that knowledge of the sacred, to get a glimpse of that vision, that far-off mystical knowledge, we have to lower ourselves. We have to humble ourselves. We have to step down off of our uh, pedestal that we've put ourselves on, or that our conditioning has put ourselves on. To lower ourselves, to crouch as low as we can, to get close to the earth, and then to use our utmost ability to jump as high as we can to reach the highest goal possible in our life. And then we might get a glimpse of the sacred, of that which is worthy of reverence and respect. That mountain, that high and noble way of life that is possible if we get a glimpse of it. And when we have this uh, glimpse, or when we, when we undertake this initial practice to, to see the sacredness in our own life, then we open. We get a glimpse. But the opening isn't permanent. And we land back on earth again, not yet fully realizing the sacred, but merely getting a glimpse. And when we land back on earth, we're usually in a different place than where we left from. And this too can be frightening and disappointing and confusing. And we may blame that person, that path, that practice that gave us that glimpse and didn't um, offer it permanently. Then we have suspicion and doubt and believe that we've been humiliated by our teacher or by whatever has offered us uh, the taste, but not the whole meal. And our fear and our anger can blind us unless we're cautioned to carefully acknowledge what we have seen. What we do here in practice is carefully acknowledge what we see so that our fear and our anger won't blind us. We need to name what it is that we see, identify it, to become aware of things as they are, even if we can't have them permanently. And with that ability to name what we have seen, we are transformed. Our personality is transformed. We undergo some profound change in our self. And we may get a new name, a new sense of ourself. Now we've seen the sacred. We can acknowledge that. And we want to share it. Often we want to share it with others. And we run back home, we run to our neighbors, we run to our family, our friends, uh, excited to tell them what we now know. But the direction 
back home or the direction to the familiar community is away from the river of life, away from the sacred. <clears throat> and sometimes we're not welcomed back with our new knowledge. It may be frightening. It may be unknown to others. They don't know how to understand it. They may be confused by our appearance, by our behavior. And when we're unable to explain in their terms so that they can understand, we may be shunned and ostracized and disappointed. We can return to the appearance of a normal life, but inwardly we know there's a difference. It's difficult to forget our vision of the sacred, even when it's not in sight. I remember when I did my first retreat, I left a commune that I was uh, living in and went to a retreat. And many of you have heard the story of my first retreat where I didn't have a clue as to where I was going or what I was doing. It was just pure accident. And it was very difficult. Uh, two-week retreat, and there was a lot of pain and a lot of efforting to, to, to do something and uh, survive, mostly. And uh, occasionally there'd be a glimpse of stillness or quietness or tranquility in the mind, but mostly there was just a lot of agitation and confusion and, and, and difficulty. But when I went home or back to that commune, that community I was living in, I could see that I had been through something really profound and felt um, a strange sense of alienation and disconnection from those whom I'd been living with for many years. Just realizing that I had some knowledge of myself now that I didn't know how to put words to. I couldn't really share. They couldn't really know. And though I returned to my familiar routines and patterns and work, inwardly there was a different sense of who I was within it. And like for me, the memory burned in the mind and the heart of Jumping Mouse. And one day he went to the edge of the river place, to the edge of the place of mice, and looked out onto the prairie he looked up for eagles. The sky was full of many spots, each one an eagle. But he was determined to go to the sacred mountains. He gathered all his courage and ran as fast as he could onto the prairie. His little heart pounded with excitement and fear. He ran until he came to a stand of sage. He was resting and trying to catch his breath when he saw an old mouse. The patch of sage old mouse lived in was a haven for mice. Seeds were plentiful, and there was nesting material, and many things to be busy with. Hello, said old mouse. Welcome. Jumping mouse was amazed. Such a place, and such a mouse. You are truly a great mouse, jumping mouse said, with all the respect he could find. This is truly a wonderful place, and the eagles cannot see you here either, jumping mouse said. Yes, yeah, said Old Mouse, and one can see all of the beings of the prairie here. 
the buffalo, the antelope, the rabbit, the coyote. One can see them all here and know their names. That is marvelous, Jumping Mouse said. Can you also see the river and the great mountains? Yes and no, Old Mouse said with conviction. I know there is a great river, but I am afraid that the great mountains are only a myth. Forget your passion to see them and stay here with me. There is everything you want here, and it is a good place to be. How can he say such a thing, thought Jumping Mouse. The medicine of the sacred mountains is nothing one can forget. I thank you very much for the meal you have shared with me, old mouse, and also for, sh for sharing your great home, Jumping Mouse said. But I must seek the mountains. You are a foolish mouse to leave here. There is danger on the prairie. Just look up there, old mouse said with even more conviction. See all those spots? They are eagles and they will catch you. Well, the first glimpse isn't the entire journey. And though it may be impossible to forget the glimpse of the sacred, we do have to go to the edge of the familiar and with determination go beyond it. And in our initial foray into the unknown, we may meet with old wisdom, one who sees and knows the names of all beings. But it takes a lot of courage to overcome that fear and determination. And when we find this old wisdom, it can look to be a fantastically rich and lush place to live, to be, to hang out, to gather all of that knowledge and to learn all of those names. To get and have and do more of the same. When we meet an authority, when we meet a spiritual authority, someone who can tell us everything we want to know, someone who lives aloof from the crowd, out on the prairie alone, content with fantastic riches, someone who's gotten very comfortable with their knowledge, we might be seduced to live that life. But it's a life without passion. It's a life of denial where we are satisfied and content with this limited worldly knowledge and wealth of knowing the names of things. And we can get stuck in living there. And when we insist on remembering our own vision, our own experience, and acknowledging our own truth, and acknowledge that we need to move on, the old wise one may try to shame us and use fear to keep us there. And if you listen to some of the stories that students tell of some of their spiritual teachers, you'll hear such stories. They're not so difficult to find. 
but one needs great determination, I think, to, to remember that vision that we have of what is possible and to not be content with any destination but that and to continue on our journey to the end. For myself, it came after about 10 years of doing retreats. And I'd been doing uh, retreats, more retreats each year, and uh, had been spending most of my time here at the Meditation Center. Been on staff for a few years and on the board of directors for many years, and was just really quite at home here. IMS was a really nice place to live and work and practice and to know and to do. And even, even did a long retreat 10 months here once and thought, ah, this is the life. This is really it. And then some very subtle discontent started bubbling up in my life. And I realized that it wasn't going to be satisfied or put off by more of the same, more retreats, more uh, knowing the teachers and being here and doing and gathering more spiritual things here. And it was then that I felt the need to really go deeply into the practice and see where this practice really takes you. Not just to read about it and hear about it from others, but to really look and find for myself whether it was true what teachers and others would say. And it's very difficult to leave something that is so comfortably familiar. You can imagine, you know, if you were completely at ease and home here and leave here to go continue your practice, to, to <coughs> let go of the familiar, to continue the journey into the unknown. It was hard for Jumping Mouse to leave, but he gathered his determination and ran hard again. The ground was rough, but he arched his tail and ran with all his might. He could feel the shadows of the spots upon his back as he ran. All those spots. Finally, he ran into a stand of choke cherries. Jumping Mouse, again, could hardly believe his eyes. It was cool there and very spacious. There was water, cherries and seeds to eat, grasses to gather for nests, holes to be explored, and many, many other busy things to do. And there were a great many things to gather. He was investigating his new domain when he heard very heavy breathing. He quickly investigated the sound and discovered its source. It was a great mound of hair with black horns. It was a great buffalo. Jumping Mouse could hardly believe the greatness of the being he saw lying there before him. He was so large that Jumping Mouse could have crawled into one of his great horns. Such a magnificent being, thought Jumping Mouse, and he crept closer. Hello, my brother, said the buffalo. Thank you for visiting me. 
Hello, great being, said Jumping Mouse. Why, why are you lying there? I am sick and I am dying, the buffalo said. And my medicine has told me that only the eye of a mouse can heal me. But little brother, there is no such thing as a mouse. Jumping Mouse was shocked. One of my eyes, he thought? One of my tiny eyes? He scurried back into the stand of choke cherries, but the breathing came harder and slower. He will die, thought Jumping Mouse, if I do not give him my eye. He is too great a being to let die. He went back to where the buffalo lay and spoke. I am a mouse, he said with a shaky voice, and you, my brother, are a great being. I cannot let you die. I have two eyes, so you may have one of them. The minute he said it, Jumping Mouse's eye flew out of his head and the buffalo was made whole. The buffalo jumped to his feet, shaking Jumping Mouse's whole world. Thank you, my little brother, said the buffalo. I know of your quest for the sacred mountain and of your visit to the river. You have given me life so that I may give away to the people. I will be your brother forever. Run under my belly and I will take you right to the foot of the sacred mountains and you need not fear the spots. The eagles cannot see you while you run under me. All they will see will be the back of a buffalo. I am of the prairie and I will fall on you if I try to go up the mountains. Little Mouse ran under the buffalo, secure and hidden from the spots, but with only one eye, it was frightening. The buffalo's great hooves shook the whole world each time he took a step. Finally, they came to a place and buffalo stopped. This is where I must leave you, little brother, said the buffalo. Thank you very much, said Jumping Mouse. But you know, I was very frightened running under you with only one eye. I was constantly in fear of your great earth-shaking hooves. Your fear was for nothing, said Buffalo, for my way of walking is the Sundance way, and I always know where my hooves will fall. I now must return to the prairie, my brother. You can always find me there. In this part of the journey, Mouse and we need to learn to give up our way of seeing to renounce what we know and to share with others out of compassion. Again, it takes determination to leave that which is so comfortably familiar and to travel over the rough terrain of awakening. And you have ample evidence of just how difficult it is and how determined you must be to sit here and to face the dukkha of the mind, of the body. This is not an easy journey. It's not an easy opening to do. And our fear and dread of exposure and taking the risk can be tremendous. We all have felt how difficult and how vulnerable we can feel just to open to that which is already within us. But with a renewed commitment and determined awareness, we can find those cool, spacious places in our own life, in our practice, where we aren't hindered, where we do have some seclusion, some coolness, some calm, some tranquility, 
and no heat. And again, we can investigate this new space. We can get quite infatuated with coolness, spaciousness, the subtlety of things being okay. But all is not well in cool spaciousness. For within that, we can come across and discover this weak and dying great being within us. This great being that has atrophied and been uncared for for so long. Our wounded self. Great, but hampered, weakened, sick and dying. And often when we get a glimpse of the greatness we can be, but the woundedness that obscures it, we have this intuitive knowledge we can see. We know that we need to give up our way of seeing who we are and learn another way of seeing. We must partially sacrifice something very dear to ourself in order to heal our woundedness to become great. To let go of our self-preoccupation without expectation of reward or gain, but rather out of a sense of compassion, of love for ourselves, give up our attachments to who we think we are. To give up our refuge in our self-righteous anger and our insatiable needs. And when we do, when we act out of compassion, when we understand that the solid foundation of awakening is caring, then we're made whole. We become connected to ourself, respectful of ourself and others, compassionate towards all. And we connect with something greater than a limited personal sense of ourself, but rather a sense of ourself as part of the whole the whole interconnected being that we are. And when we do that, when we live compassionately and offer our life to others, then we can let others guide us along the spiritual path to the sacred. Caring, as Lao Tzu said, is a shield from heaven that protects us from being dead. <clears throat> Such generosity of compassion rewards us in unforeseen ways and we see the world differently. Though it may be frightening to give up part of ourself, our sense of ourself, we do arrive at a different kind of security in knowing. For myself, it was really in 
my most intensive practice in Burma, when, as I mentioned in a previous talk, I just really came to the knowledge that there really wasn't anyone or anything or any experience that was going to do it for me. Where there really wasn't any sense of self to be carried into the future that was going to be satisfying. But rather seeing that the interconnectedness with all beings in a giving up of my limited sense of who I was and what I had to get from myself was really the key to awakening. Living in full realization of our interdependence with each other and acting out of compassion for caring for oneself and others. This is the life of the awakened ones. But again, at the foot of the sacred mountains, Jumping Mouse immediately began to investigate his new surroundings. There were even more things here than in other places, busier things, and an abundance of seeds and other things mice-like. In his investigation of these things, suddenly he ran upon a gray wolf who was sitting there doing absolutely nothing. Hello, Brother Wolf, Jumping Mouse said. The wolf's ears came alert and his eyes shone. Wolf! Wolf! Yes, that is what I am. I am a wolf. But then his mind dimmed again and it was no long. It was not long before he sat quietly again, completely without memory as to who he was. Each time Jumping Mouse reminded him who he was, he became excited with the news, but soon would forget again. <laughs> Such a great being, thought Jumping Mouse, but he has no memory. Jumping Mouse went to the center of this new place and was quiet. He listened for a very long time to the beating of his heart. Then suddenly he made up his mind. He scurried back to where the wolf sat and he spoke. Brother Wolf, Jumping Mouse said. Wolf, wolf, said the wolf. Please, please, Brother Wolf, said Jumping Mouse. Please listen to me. I know what will heal you. It is one of my eyes and I want to give it to you. You are a greater being than I. I am only a mouse. Please take it. When Jumping Mouse stopped speaking, his eye flew out of his head and the wolf was made whole. Tears fell down the cheeks of wolf but his little brother could not see them, for now he was blind. You are a great brother, said the wolf, for now I have my memory, but now you are blind. I am the guide into the sacred mountains. I will take you there. There is a great medicine lake there, the most beautiful lake in the world. All the world is reflected there, the people, the lodges of the people, and all the beings of the prairies and skies. Please take me there, Jumping Mouse said. The wolf guided him through the pines to the medicine lake. Jumping Mouse drank the water from the lake. The wolf described the beauty to him. I must leave you here, said Wolf, for I must return so that I may guide others. But I will remain with you as long as you like. Thank you, my brother, said Jumping Mouse. But although I am frightened to be alone, I know you must go, 
so that you may show others the way to this place. Jumping Mouse sat there trembling in fear. It was no use running, for he was blind, but he knew an eagle would find him here. He felt a shadow on his back and heard the sound that eagles make. He braced himself for the shock and the eagle hit. Jumping Mouse went to sleep. Then he woke up. The surprise of being alive was great, but now he could see. Everything was blurry, but the colors were beautiful. I can see. I can see, said Jumping Mouse, over again and again. A blurry shape came toward Jumping Mouse. Jumping Mouse squinted hard, but the shape remained a blur. Hello, brother, a voice said. Do you want some medicine? Some medicine for me, asked Jumping Mouse. Yeah, yeah. Then crouch as low as you can, the voice said, and jump as high as you are able. Jumping Mouse did as he was instructed. He crouched as low as he could and jumped. The wind caught him and carried him higher. Do not be afraid, the voice called to him. Hang on to the wind and trust. Jumping Mouse did. He closed his eyes and hung on to the wind and it carried him higher and higher. Jumping Mouse opened his eyes and they were clear. And the higher he went, the clearer they became. Jumping Mouse saw his old friend upon a lily pad on the beautiful Medicine Lake. It was the frog. You have a new name called the frog. You are eagle. So in this concluding uh, episode, when we get to the foot of the sacred mountains, the place for our final ascent, again, there are a lot of things to do and see and to be busy with. Even better things. Spiritual things. And it's here that we again meet another guide to the top of the sacred mountain. There are different guides for different terrain in this story, just as there is in our spiritual awakening. Different guides take us different distances on the path. But first, we must overcome even more temptations to be content and indulge in those spiritual things. And it's here that we discover our forgetful self, the forgetful one within us. When we get lost in those blissful states, that good samadhi, that tranquility, calmness, piti, joy, ecstasy, whatever it is, wherever you get caught, wherever you forget, to be present. It's here that we need to remember again to name what it is we see, to let go of where we're stuck, to develop our perception, to recognize, to remember, to not forget knowing happening. When we're able to enter the center of ourselves and discover what is needed, we'll understand that it again is compassion and an even greater sacrifice of our attached way of seeing the world and give up completely 
the familiar and enter the unknown blind without any preconceptions as to what the unknown will reveal. And when we surrender and give up that last thread of familiar understanding, of seeing, then we can heal and become whole. It's at this place where we need to let go of our view of what is spiritual and needing to understand why things are the way they are, but rather to just see things as they are and to let go of our attachment to spiritual effects in practice or the highs and joys of insight and go blind with gratitude and appreciation, remembering who the guide is into the sacred knowledge, knowing, being present. <clears throat> Ask yourself in your practice, is this the end of the journey? Is this the end of dukkha? Is this the most I can imagine possible? And if not, then let go of it and continue on into the unknown. We don't know the subtlety of freedom, of transcendence, of pure openness. And when we do, when we can go blind into the unknown, it is a fearful very fearful time in practice to let go of all of our imaginings of what openness is like. And we may know, or we may sense, or we may feel that the end of our familiar sense of ourself is near. And when we're tapped by the Spirit, we may appear to go to sleep. And when we wake up, we're a different being. We have a different view of the world, a different understanding of what was once familiar, where the colors are fantastically beautiful and the shapes, though unfamiliar, can be seen. But in order to realize that awakened state, we again need to humble ourselves and to crouch as low as we can and to jump as high as we are able in order to let the wind of circumstance catch us and take us in trust, to just spread our wings and let go and let the winds of circumstance take you higher where your vision becomes clearer, where you leave that sense, that limited earthbound sense of yourself. In the Native American tradition, eagles are regarded as a spirit of power. And the presence of an eagle is really strengthens the heart and gives great courage 
crazy horse, Anoglala Lakota, said, a great, a very great vision is needed, and the one who has it must follow it as the eagle seeks the deepest blue of the sky. So, may your vision carry you to the deep blue sky. So, let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.